With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. The It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Investigative journalism is not a thing of the past. It's not like something we look at in movies and say, wasn't it great back in the 70s when Woodward and Bernstein were doing this sort of work? It continues every day. It's happening in the community where you live. It's just a matter of seeking it out. Investigative reporting may be the most important thing that journalists do. We uncover fraud and wrongdoing, expose corruption and hold the powerful accountable, all for the betterment of society. I'm Michael O'Connell. Welcome to It's All Journalism. Nick Hershon is a former reporter for the New York Daily News and a journalism professor at William Patterson University in New Jersey. Nick's here to talk about a special issue of the academic journal American Journalism on the history of investigative reporting. Nick, welcome to the It's All Journalism podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. So you're a former reporter and now you're a journalism professor. So tell me about your, you know, your journey in journalism. What got you interested and, you know, how'd you end up becoming a professor? I grew up in New York City and my parents were very interested in news media, would get the newspaper every day, the New York Times on Sundays. And that really became a big part of my youth growing up. And we didn't have cable television, so we would listen to the news radio station, 1010 Winds in my area, and read the papers. And that became the foundation of my interest in journalism, wanting to become a reporter. I also had a big interest in history. So that was all part of going around to travel to historic sites. And that is a great merger of the history of journalism then. And so I just kind of from an early age saw the impact that good journalism can have on an audience, helping them make better informed decisions giving people in a community a sense of what's going on when they don't have time to ferret out that information for themselves. And I feel that's a great responsibility. And it was really kind of a privilege to be able to, to do that. I went to the Columbia Journalism School for my master's. I went to Ohio University to get a PhD in mass communication. And I was working at the New York Daily News for six years. The time was one of the most highest circulated newspapers in the United States and reporting on community news stories in the home borough where I'm from, from Queens. So Columbia and Ohio, you couldn't get into Syracuse or, or Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> those are actually two really good schools. I've heard of Columbia, but they put out those <laughs> records, right? Um, there you go. There we go. Well, that's cool. And the fact that, you know, your interest in history and, and now you're in teaching, what's it like being a professor of journalism in 2022? It's a really interesting experience because when I was going to school, I still felt that, you know, I was being taught by the generation that grew up with Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men, the book and the film creating this image of the journalist as a hero, as someone who could take down a corrupt president and make sure they're not harming the United States. As you know, as we've now reached 2022, that image of the journalist has shifted dramatically and public trust 
in the medium has declined and politicians like Richard Nixon would have criticized the media, but often did it behind closed doors. Now it's happening every day at rallies, in news interviews, on social media, being called fake news, enemy of the people. So I think that's something that complicates the nature of journalism education when you're having to train these young folks who are really enthusiastic, excited about the future of journalism and see their role in it. But at the same time, there's a lot of people in their ear. Sometimes it could be parents and friends saying, why would you go into an industry that is dying? Newspapers are all going out of business or their budgets are declining, there's layoffs. And then you have just the public at large saying, we don't trust you like we used to. So I think that's a challenge. I think there's lots of discussions going on about the nature of objectivity in journalism. Is that still a concept that we should be exploring? Is it changing in an age when a lot of my students, for example, are more interested in advocacy journalism or in niche areas of journalism, maybe less the hard news, political journalism, and more sports or music or some other specialized field. So it's still very invigorating. When I started teaching as an adjunct at a local community college in Queens, I found it really exciting to be with young people at a time when the industry had a lot of cynicism in it, but I was still pretty young and thought, you know, wait, I've just kind of gotten to this field that I've been excited about entering in for so many years. The second that I show up, don't now tell me like, oh yeah, by the way, it's dying. You should choose another career path. So I want to make sure that I encourage all of those folks to stay in the industry. Yeah. I, I remember my experience, like being an editor at a community newspaper and we would get interns in, you know, over the summer. And uh, I was, you know, going to American university, getting my master's in interactive journalism, really psyched about digital journalism and sort of the possibilities of the things that we could do. This is 2010. And so... <laughs> Unfortunately, I was so full of this, this, these ideas and this enthusiasm that when, when these two interns came in, they wanted to write stories, they wanted to have their byline, they wanted to have their picture next to the story on the front page of a paper, me not realizing that. And I said to him, you know, I'm so excited for you, you're coming at a great time to come into journalism because everything is changing. And they both went, what do you mean? And <laughs> there was fear in their eyes. And I had to sort of pedal back and explain, yeah, well, you know, there's these things that are happening on, you know, tectonic shifts in our industry, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, a lot has changed in those last 12 years. You know, I'm still excited about it and the possibilities of journalism. And it's good to hear that there are students who are willing to sort of go, go out on the limb when their family and friends are, are telling them that, you know, that's an industry for liars, people who, who are trying to grift or whatever. They're enthusiastic, I guess, at least in the belief that, Maybe they can affect change by doing good journalism. Yeah, journalists by nature can be very stubborn. And I think that when you believe in the mission of a journalist, when you're saying, I want to better inform my community, I think there are stories that I know are out there. For example, from a lot of diverse communities that my students come from at William Patterson, where we're a majority minority school, Hispanic serving institution. There's a lot of those different you know, populations out there that we know are important to cover. And when you really believe in that, then you're not going to be stopped just by someone telling you, well, I don't know, it's kind of a difficult industry to be in right now. As a teacher, and you brought up, and we're, we are going to get to it, <laughs> the, the article that you wrote, but you brought up a couple of things that I wanted to 
follow up on. One of them is the future, I guess, of ob objectivity. It's something I'm sure that you still have in your curriculum. And then also the sort of rise of, you know, advocacy journalism, this idea that I want to do journalism that, that's going to affect change in a certain way, as opposed to I'm going to cover this beat and then, you know, be objective about it, which we know is not balanced necessarily. It's, you know, telling the story that is, but make sure that people have an opportunity within context to, to say their position, I guess, opposing position. And I think that it's important to remember that objectivity in journalism is not necessarily in the foundation of journalism in the United States. A lot of the early American newspapers were partisan and they were started by political parties and they would report on each other. And a lot of the investigative journalism that we've seen throughout the years, could you say it was entirely objective? I mean, they were trying to be fair, certainly at times, but there's always going to be an impetus for why you're interested in a certain topic. And if we prejudice might be too strong a word because it can be kind of pejorative, but just there's a reason why you're interested in a certain topic, going into it in depth. And that's also in an industry right now that is undergoing such change and the salary for journalists isn't great. The amount of time that they have to work has been increasing. The number of skills that they need to know from writing and video and audio editing and social media, it's a lot to put on this young generation. So when we do see that they are passionate about some aspect of journalism, like advocacy journalism, which I would argue sometimes is crossing over into is an investigative journalism in a sense, advocacy journalism, you're telling people, look at what this bad person did who's a politician. Maybe you should reconsider whether you should vote for them. I mean, that in some ways is a form of advocacy. So if we can channel whatever energy those young folks have, even amid all the negativity that they're hearing, I think it's worth exploring. Yeah. I mean, we've certainly had guests on the podcast in the past who were sort of raising these questions. Is the journalist a witness who only sees what's in front of them or puts things in context? You know, and then, you know, what are the expectations for you as a, an employee of a company? And, <laughs> and that idea of the journalist as a witness, although it's a, a nice concept and it is important for students to understand that your role should not be to persuade the public necessarily, but it's also just probably unachievable. You know, a journalist looking at an event part of what the public is relying on us to do is to analyze it and make sense of it and distill it, right? We necessarily have to frame stories because we don't have an endless word count or the entirety of a newscast to talk about one issue. We have to condense it. And when we're making those choices about what to include and exclude, we are in some cases advocating for a certain part of the story to be higher profile. It's been happening in the beginning of time, right? What's going to be on the front page? What isn't going to be in the newspaper at all? Or what's going to be stuffed back with the classified ads? It is just a inherently a part of a journalistic process that I think we need to acknowledge. And that's different from like the more sinister side of what you know, people might pejoratively talk about advocacy journalism as being, you have one political opinion, you want your reader to really vote on this issue this way or vote for this politician or whatever action you want them to take. And so you're just ignoring facts that go against your argument. That's where we get into something that's really dangerous, as opposed to, you know, we're still working toward what we view as truth, 
but there's just a, a different way of looking at it that's not so negative. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, <laughs> as fun as that was to talk about, and as important as it is to talk about, because we do need, I mean, the thing that you said about there that sometimes journalists need to come to grips with what, what they're really doing and be honest about it. And all of us have had things where we've covered something and deep down we would want maybe a different outcome or we want to send out a different message or report something different. But because we, we want to report the truth, then we include information that, that may not be what we agree with or whatever, but because that, that reflects our understanding of what the truth is at that moment. And just the, the very nature of journalism, that we have a limited amount of time and space in order to convey messages. And so that's what the public wants us to do, to distill it. We cannot give them every single story that's happening or every aspect of a story. They don't have time for that. They want us to kind of give us the essential summary, the highlights, the takeaways, and then they go on and live their lives. You know, I, I mentioned this to my students a lot, but remember that the audience, they're not required to read your story. They're doing this as leisure and entertainment in their free time. So, you know, we have to understand that news is a business and that the audience that we're working for, you know, has a lot going on in their lives that is distracting them and challenging their ability to read everything that we put out. We sometimes, I think in journalism, we get so hung up on like terms like advocacy journalism, objectivity, and essentially what it really comes down to is, are we serving our audience? And that's what you mentioned is the reader has to come first or the listener or the viewer. You have to put them as what are their interests? What will help them make better decisions? And as long as you are really focusing on that, even if there may be some element of advocacy, like, you know, is it advocacy, for example, to be reporting on some scam that's going on and saying you should avoid giving money to this false charity or you should avoid buying a product from this place? You know, is Consumer Reports advocacy when they are giving a review of a product and telling folks maybe you should not buy this because we tried it out. It really wasn't worth as much as it is. I mean, obviously there is some element of advocacy in a lot of what we do, but it's also very good and very valuable yeah. for the reader. Yeah. And I come down on that quite a lot, actually. Sometimes I'll write something or I'll share something and it's like, yeah, I mean, this is clearly, you know, editorial maybe, but there's good information in here. And as, as long as it's clearly marked and people understand that it's sponsored by whatever, I mean, people forget, everybody talks about the, the large daily newspaper, but people forget a lot of people bought, you know, those papers toward the end of the weeks. Cause that was where the, the grocery coupons were. So they weren't always buying the newspaper for, you know, great journalism, but to steer us back toward the conversation about great journalism. Tell me about this series that you're doing. I guess it's not a series. It's an issue of American journalism on investigative journalism. Right. So as you mentioned before, I'm a journalism professor at William Patterson University in New Jersey, and I'm also the associate editor for a journal named American Journalism, which focuses on the history of media in the United States and beyond. We go into broadcasting, advertising, sports, lots of other areas, public relations. But with the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in happening this year in 2022, I said, maybe we should look at the legacy of Watergate reporting and the full history of investigative journalism. We knew that there were going to be a lot of projects this year focusing on Watergate specifically. And Woodward and Bernstein came out with books and they're doing the lecture circuit. There's going to be a lot of that coverage. But 
also in the popular imagination, I think that sometimes we only view investigative journalism through the lens of Watergate and kind of thinking that it started with Woodward and Bernstein and that there really wasn't much that happened before that or after that there haven't been a lot of big successes. And we know that that is not true. So looking in this special issue at how can we highlight other instances in history where journalists have covered something, brought it to public attention, won Pulitzers for it, really change the public's opinion about an issue or about our institution as a whole and the value that it can bring to the public that right now distrusts us a lot. But if we are doing that kind of good work, then maybe people see the journalists as their friend, as their advocate in a community. So basically the way that we, you know, work a special issue is, you know, we're going to depart from the norm. So for those who might not be familiar with an academic journal, because I certainly wasn't until I became a professor and got a PhD, an academic journal like ours, we usually have original peer-reviewed research written by professors and grad students across the country. And that's, you know, original work that they're doing. They're going into archives and finding out information. And I want that to still be a part of this issue, but also to kind of pull in other voices that we don't normally have. For example, we usually have in every issue of American journalism reviews that are written again by professors or graduate students of books or films or digital archives, websites that would be of interest to a journalism historian. And I said, well, instead of having these reviews written by the journalism professors, why don't we actually reach out to investigative journalists today who are still working, ask them, what book inspired you to become an investigative reporter? What film have you watched in recent years and said, you know, they're kind of really not showing what it's really like to be investigative reporter today. They're romanticizing or dramatizing it. And then as a final component, and probably the, you know, one of the really exciting aspects of this issue is interviewing investigative journalists and people who are involved in Watergate and asking them for their reflections. Now that we're at the 50th anniversary, what would you like to tell us about how Watergate affected your life, your career? And so we have interviews with lots of investigative journalists like Connie Chung and work that people like Steve Scully, who worked at C-SPAN for many years, did going into Ron Nixon, Associated Press vice president, and but also figures from Watergate. I spoke with John Dean, who was Nixon's White House counsel, Dwight Chapin, who was one of Nixon's aides, appointment secretary. Both of those men went to prison for their involvement in Watergate and have very different views on Nixon's involvement and how he was covered by the media. The bottom line is we want to appeal to a wider audience. Academic journals traditionally are housed in university libraries. They're behind paywalls and they reach a very small audience. And for a lot of us who used to be reporters before we became professors, we're not used to reaching such a small audience. When I was a reporter for the New York Daily News, I might write a story one day and it'll then go out to 500,000 readers getting the paper the next day as opposed to an academic journal article. And sometimes we joke in the industry of, you know, you write something and you might spend a few years researching a topic and then it gets read by like, you know, your mom or your dad or like, you know, some of your buddies and that's about it. And so this is trying to show like the general public, we're writing in a way that is narrative storytelling. We're former reporters who know how to tell good tales. And also like, wouldn't you be interested in hearing what someone like a Connie Chung or a John Dean or these other figures have to say? So you're talking to a reporter who 
chose journalism as a profession because of Watergate. I'm of that generation. That's how old I am. And it really did sort of change, you know, people's perception of what the, the news is. I mean, every once in a while I go back and I watch the movie, you know, obvious as a Hollywood movie. And, you know, the two of them don't look like Woodward and Bernstein at all. And you realize the movie kind of stops like right before the good stuff gets going. And so they were certainly part of it. And there were other, you know, the New York Times was was also involved in this as well. But anyway, let's talk first about Watergate and then we'll talk about some of the other things. What I mean, what did you learn? Did you learn anything surprisingly new or different from the interviews you did? Well, to the point you were just making about the book and the movie, All the President's Men, and the impact that it had on so many young journalists. And even though I was not alive when Watergate happened, you know, I was growing up in the 1990s, but my parents were telling me about the impact that Watergate had and remembering watching Richard Nixon's resignation. And when I was in journalism school, of course, I was exposed to All the President's Men and Woodward and Bernstein as these heroic journalists. And it was a very inspiring movie. I've shown it to my classes for many years. I could probably recite like whole parts of that dialogue. I've seen it about as much as any movie ever. And it still has a lot of value in how it can motivate young journalists and show them the importance of hard work and diligence. And yet there's also what I've learned through researching this issue and speaking in particular to John Dean, who has some very strong negative views about that movie and told me that he thinks it borders on criminality in the dramatization of events and really positioning Woodward and Bernstein as solely responsible, as you know, the only reporters who were really covering this when no one else to do it, as you mentioned, and Cy Hirsch and lots of other journalists were covering. Connie Chung was reporting on some of this on CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. There were obviously reporters around the country who were doing different aspects of this. And this also goes to the point we were talking about before about advocacy journalism, because if we position Woodward and Bernstein as solely responsible, it's kind of could have a dangerous impact of thinking like, hey, any journalist writing for a major mainstream publication, if they just said, I really don't like the president right now, that they could do research that could help get them out of office now. Of course, what Richard Nixon did was wrong and, you know, it, it was truly wrong and they you know, were covering it accurately. But there is a, a problem if sometimes people would watch that movie and get the message of, hey, I think that journalism is really good because I could just whatever my opinions are, I could just force them on other people and make history. And, and that obviously shouldn't be the number one reason why you become a journalist. I, I want to be able to show up people's houses at all hours of the day and badger them. <laughs> um, to confirm something. I think upon reflection, probably Spotlight is a better journalism movie. I recognize people in, the, in some of those characters, people I've worked with in the way they think and approach journalism. I mean, it's still a Hollywood movie, so it's got, you know, it's doing what it's doing to, to engage the audience. Very powerful story to very... What I liked about that over Watergate is I, I felt I had a, a more true understanding of like investigative journalism that we're going to take something and we're just going to just chip away at it. You know, Spotlight is a terrific movie. I actually am the advisor of our society of professional journalists chapter at William Patterson. And one year we put a big bedsheet over the side of our building and projected spotlight on the side so we could watch it outdoors. And it is a movie that I think 
in its length and its detail, it shows that the journalists who are reporting that story are nuanced. They really come out to you as three-dimensional figures, and they are battling their own reticence about you know their own background as Catholics or lapsed Catholics and operating in a society in Boston that has reason to doubt their reporting, that's going to resist their reporting because it's challenging what they've known as the Catholic Church as the dominant institution and all good and and also, like, there's moments in Spotlight where they show in the middle of their work and they're doing all this important reporting, September 11th happens. And then that delays everything else that they're doing because that becomes the dominant story for a while. And, you know, and it shows us that this work takes time. What's also nice about Spotlight, as opposed to All the President's Men, All the President's Men, we do see Deep Throat, who we later realized was Mark Felt, meeting with the reporters and, you know, this dark figure in a parking garage, we see him positioned as pretty much the altruistic and one of the only or the most important source. They obviously had other sources that they show in the movie, but they kind of present him as the glue that puts everything together. Whereas in Spotlight, I think we see a little bit more of there's lots and lots of sources that they're going to. There's both movies, I think, are really good at showing that shoe leather journalism, getting out there and the importance of just sometimes knocking on a door. And yet, like 99 times, these people will slam the door in your face and yell at you and won't talk to you. But every now and then you get to someone like they show in Spotlight, you knock on the door and the priest says, oh, yeah, I sexually abuse children. And it's like, wait, what? What did you just say? As a working journalist, I'm constantly amazed at the things people just say and will admit to. And, you know, they know who you are. They know what you might say and do. But, you know, give them an opportunity. And certainly there are people who will tell you things that they're telling you because they're trying to deceive you. But I think most people have rarely had problems where people were aggressive or negative or, or whatever that they, you know, they may say no and walk away. But I think they recognize that they'd rather have the truth out there than a lie. And so I think maybe that that's a self-correcting factor. But what other, I know we ended up talking about two movies, but what other types of investigations are you highlighting in American journalism? So I mentioned before, we want to show that Watergate was not the first investigation in journalism history in the United States. So we have research from James Acoin, a former professor at University of South Alabama, looking at the history of investigative journalism in the U.S., going all the way back to the colonies and the first edition of Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic, the first newspaper in 1690, talking about Britain's American Indian allies, the Iroquois, were torturing French prisoners during the King William's War. We have Examples of partisan journalism was actually when there was first rumors about President Thomas Jefferson having an affair with Sally Hemings, a woman he was enslaving. So there's that history that I think is important to know that it goes very far back and that sometimes it was done with a partisan cause. There may have been truth involved, but the motive to gain the truth may not have been altruistic all the time, just as it wasn't necessarily with Mark Felt, who was revealing a lot of this information during Watergate because he wanted to be the director of the FBI and take down some of the other people who were involved. Yeah, it's funny that once Felt died and um, Woodward wrote about it, his relationship with him, then it's like you view everything in a very, very different light. No, definitely. And so, and we also have another article I should mention from Jerry Linoska as a professor at Indiana University talking about abolitionists in the 1830s and how they were looking at 
Southern newspapers and accounts from former slaveholders to kind of highlight how the terrible nature of the torture that was happening in the South that Northern audiences might not have fully grasped. And this book that was published in 1839, American Slavery as it is, Testimony of a Thousand Witnesses by Theodore Weld, and how really showing some of the horrible things that slave owners were able to get away with and being able in some instances to even kill their slaves, to torture them to death, and then be acquitted because the only other witnesses to this crime were fellow slaves. So who are you going to trust, the slave or the slave owner? And really kind of exposing the horrors of those sorts of things to a public that may not have agreed with slavery, but just wasn't presented with that reality every day. And I think those sorts of precursors to Watergate, and there's lots more than obviously those examples I'm giving you from James Acoin and Jerry Lanoska's research, but I think that's important to keep in context. Yeah, and then you also think about something, you know, I also, you know, I was a child in the 1960s mm-hmm. and, and how the opposition to the war kind of grew because of, you know, what was showing up in the newspapers and on the TVs in the evening news, that this hope that if you present the facts and enough of them, people may begin to understand the story better, change their position, you know, affecting change. I know personally, one of the things that I I enjoy about journalism is the idea that you can affect change, not necessarily for yourself, but, you know, the people that you interview, that you report on, that you share their story and, you know, they get some sort of justice out of of it or, or something changes. I mean, certainly, you know, journalists are living in a society that is imperfect and they are just as frustrated with some of what they see happening around them as the readers that they're serving. And there's nothing wrong with channeling that frustration into dogged reporting. And we see it in All the President's Men and Spotlight and in some of this work that I was just mentioning by the abolitionists. And, you know, all of that is being willing to put yourself out there a little bit and say, I'm going to do some challenging things. People may not like it. The public may not like it. The sources that I'm working with might hate me at times. And and especially difficult to do nowadays when you have social media coming down on you. And it is tough to do these kinds of investigations. And that's, I think, also why I think it's important right now in 2022 to do this issue and to show what investigative journalism has done and to show in the authors of the reviews that we have in this issue are currently investigative journalists working at places across the country, Axios, Tampa Bay Times, San Diego Union Tribune, USA Today Network, Capital B, et cetera. And all of them are doing this kind of work every day. And some of them are Pulitzer winners. Some of them you probably never heard of, but they're doing a lot of this important work. And in an atmosphere where They may not be getting the sort of pay that their predecessors did. They may be working longer hours and being asked to do more things, you know, learn different skills and all that. And I think that it's important for the public to kind of understand that there are a lot of journalists who still are out there, that investigative journalism is not a thing of the past. It's not like something we look at in movies and say, wasn't it great back in the 70s when Woodward and Bernstein were doing this sort of work? It continues every day. It's happening in the community where you live whoever is listening to this right now, it's just a matter of seeking it out. Yeah. And how it's coming about. Sometimes it's, you know, being supported by nonprofit foundations. It's in non-traditional journalism. I feel like we could be talking for another hour about this, Nick. How can people read some of these stories that you're talking about? So they're all published in American journalism. If you 
want to Google us, you could find our website pretty easily. We're American-Journalism.org. Or you can go to Taylor and Francis is the publisher of our academic journal. And if you search Taylor and Francis, you will find copies of these articles. You'll be able to read them. Most features of an academic journal are usually behind a paywall. So you could go to your university library, or if you have an account, maybe through your local library. But for this special issue, we're also putting a lot of these features outside of the paywall so that anybody can access them, including, for example, we have a piece by W. Joseph Campbell, a professor at American University who wrote about the myth of the heroic journalist during Watergate and Woodward and Bernstein's role. The interview that I conducted with Steve Scully, the former C-SPAN host, and my colleague Pamela Walk from Duquesne University did an interview with Jill Weinbanks, the former Watergate prosecutor who's now on MSNBC. Those are all available beyond the paywall. We also have a piece by Alex Stuckey, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Houston Chronicle, where she did a review of a piece of journalism that affected her that she read in college about the infant mortality rate in Memphis, Tennessee, and how that encouraged her to become a investigative reporter who's now won the highest honor in all of our journalism field. So American-journalism.org, you'll be able to see all this sort of stuff. And really, I also encourage everybody to look at some of the reporters who were involved in this and you know read their reviews that they wrote for the issue, but also go and look at the work that they've been doing you know, for their own publications. Just to give you a sense of it, we have pieces by Lenora Lapeter Anton, a reporter at the Tampa Bay Times, Isaac Avalusia, reporter at Axios. I know you're talking about Axios before. Jeff McDonald at the San Diego Union Tribune. Caroline Michelle Aguirre, she's a reporter at a French news magazine named Lobs. Capital B, national climate reporter Adam Mahoney, vice news editor Christina Sturbens, Houston Chronicle, I mentioned Alex Stuckey before, and my friend Tom Zambito, who used to work with me at the Daily News in New York and now works for USA Today in New York. So you see, we're really trying to get a wide breadth of reporters at different kinds of outlets. Some of these are very traditional media outlets that have existed for generations. Others are more recent, like Vice, Capital B, and all different perspectives. Of course, we have women, we have you know a lot of minorities represented in the interviews that we conducted. But make sure that when you read these pieces, you know, and you and you see like what these reporters are doing, and just you know, take some time to look them up, follow them on social media. I just think it's very important to support them in any way we can. Yeah, the authors themselves have stories to tell about being an investigative journalist. Nick, thanks for coming on. This is great. You know, what can you say? I mean, investigative journalism, I know that when so many newspapers were closing, you know, one of the things that people bemoaned was the fact that this type of journalism would be disappearing and that many of the small digital startups that came afterwards were ones that were sort of focused on issues that were, you know, doing investigative work, something like ProPublica, for example. So there's a desire to have this. There's a need to have this. Great work. Anyway, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, 
Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. (laughs) Yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.